0: All right, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 20, uh, and uh, before we do, I just want to give uh, for those who are out there listening, um, my parents are on their way home from Cleveland, uh, and we expect good things, uh, probably a few more trips to come, uh, but pray for them. So uh, that's the update we have for you, you out there listening on camera. Um Luke chapter 20, we are looking to fill in some of the gaps from Sunday morning. Uh, We've been going up to Christ's resurrection. We are in the week, what's called Passion Week. Again, we're in Luke 20. We've been going through the book of Luke on Sunday mornings and to see... And know the words of Christ are fascinating always. And there's just not enough time to see the whole story, even though we do this story every year and go through it and go through it. There's more and more and more. And as you find, uh, even as you get older, you find that there is so much. Uh, it, the words of Jesus are Full. The words of the Bible, God's Word in in its entirety, is full. And you can never reach the depths of it. So you keep learning and learning and listening and seeing and understanding and applying it to your life. And that's what God wants you to do. It's a journey every day. So we're going to talk about a parable. We're going to go to verse 9 where we're going to start. And parables of Jesus are something where you begin to see the wisdom of jesus any good teacher can take a complicated subject and make it simple and that's what jesus does he takes things spiritual subjects and through a very short tiny passage he fills it with meaning and gives you understanding. And you read the story and you're like, well, I read through that and I understand it. And as you go and you dig, you see there is more and more and more behind it. And so we're going to look at this parable, chapter number 20, of ver- uh, verse 9 of the book of Luke. Now, what you need to understand is that the chief priests have and the scribes have come up and they have challenged Jesus. That's where the setting is for this story. They've challenged him. And they did one of the things that we talked about on Sunday morning. Said, by what authority do you say these things? Okay, Jesus is speaking to them. He is speaking to the crowds. By what authority do you have to do this? So they're in a mood to fight. Right? The religious leaders are in a mood to fight. And you may have met some people like that. There's a lot in there, right? They are in a mood to fight. And they don't like what Jesus has said because he threatens them. He threatens their position. He threatens their authority. And it's not by him necessarily saying something to them, but just his very being threatens who they are and what they've tried to build. Uh, So we're going to look at this and see what Christ thinks about it now. This is about three days before Christ is crucified. Okay, and There's a lot that happens in this week. We get a lot written about what happens and the words that he says. So he is in the midst of these religious leaders amongst a larger crowd, and he begins to tell this story. Okay, uh, Chapter 20, verse number 9 of the book of Luke. Then he began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at that and at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. Again, He sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, that is the crowd and the Pharisees, they said, God forbid. So here he is. He, plant, he tells a story about planting a vineyard. Now, obviously, every parable that Jesus tells... We say that's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's what a parable is. Earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so Jesus talks about a man who plants a vineyard. all right? And a vineyard is one of those things that takes a lot of tending... It starts usually from very small cuttings of the roots and they put them in the ground and they help them grow and they tend them and it's a whole season before you get a return on them right? and so the man plants this vineyard and has to go away and he goes away for a long time but before he does he says I know this is gonna take some tending so I need somebody to tend to my vineyard and those who are going to tend to my vineyard, I'm going to hire somebody. I'm going to put a hireling or a, a hired person that's going to kind of come and stay there, live there, take care of it. And when we all, when I come back at the end of the season, when it's ready for harvest, I expect we'll share that harvest. So this was not uncommon to have this happen. Uh, If you were wealthy at the time, you would own something, plant a vineyard, own something, and you may be away on business. So you need somebody to watch because if something happens, plants are fickle, it's a dry climate. You may have something where you need to get something right then and there to protect that harvest. And the guy who owns it and plants it is coming back but you're going to share in it. That was the goal. You create something that can be shared, but again, it's created by God. So who is the husbandman, or who is the guy who plants it? This is God. Okay, that's the meaning, is God is the owner of this vineyard. And what is the vineyard? Well, something that is meant to be planted in small things and to grow And to come to fruition okay so what is that well I want you to think along the lines of he's creating a way for mankind to learn about him that's what it is so what is it well it's the religion of Judaism to begin with all right which is We learn that there's a difference between relationship and and religion, right? But it is the way that God has said to mankind, I want you to learn about me. I want you to think about it that way versus just the religion of Judaism, because we'll find that that religion didn't work out as well, not because it wasn't set up correctly, but because of the problems within, the people within, All right. So here it is. He hires it and he says, I want you to tend to this garden. Tend to the people that want to learn more about me. All right. I'm going to leave you to it. I'll be back. We'll check on the fruit. All right. And so here is little Israel that grows out of one family And grows into a great nation God frees them from Egypt takes them up into the promised land and they have so much opportunity to do so many things God gives them time and time again and you you watch their journey and they fall and they they do the wrong thing and God straightens them out and they do the wrong thing again and God straightens them out again and again and again but along the way God says I'm going to come back and check I'm going to send my servant back and check on you. And what do they do? We want to check fruit, right? The responsibility was given originally to Israel to tell the world about God. That was the original responsibility. So God sent some servants along the way, right? And in the story, the first one, they beat him and they say, get out of here we're not going to give you anything we're not going to give you any grapes and the second one they abuse him they verbally abuse him and then beat him and then send him away empty and the third one they wound him and send him away And you say well that seems pretty pretty extreme but that's exactly what the nation of israel did Right. So let's go back into 2 Chronicles Hold your finger and Luke We'll be back there shortly But if you go back to the book of Second Chronicles Chapter 24 2 Chronicles chapter 24 For a moment We are going to see Exactly what he's talking about 2 Chronicles chapter number 24 Verse number 20 and 21. Talking about a man named Zechariah, okay, who was a prophet. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20 and 21. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, which stood above the people, and said unto them, Thus saith God, why transgress you the commandments of the Lord, that you cannot prosper, because you have forsaken the Lord he hath also forsaken you. All right, So he came in. Zechariah had a message for the people. You're not getting this right. What was their reaction? Verse 21. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. He killed him. All right. He came to say, I have a message straight from God. The spirit of God is on this man. I have a message straight from God. And they said, we don't like your message. And the king said, everybody gather up stones. We have a way to get rid of them. And so they killed them. Israel created this time and time again. It happened again and again. book of Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 44. Verse number 4 and verse 5, we have a repeat. This is Jeremiah basically telling what God says. Howbeit I sent unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. But they hearkened not, nor inclined thine ear, to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense unto other gods. So they said, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear what God has to say. Every prophet got turned away. Jeremiah was thrown into a well. Isaiah was sawn in half. Daniel thrown into a lion's den. And on and on and on they go... And each one, God says, I've got a message for you. And they send that prophet. And God says, I want you to know, how's it going tending the the vineyard? Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. That is the response that Israel had for their responsibility. And God said, through this little nation, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to take this little family of Abraham and I'm going to grow it into a mighty nation and people will not be able to fight against it. Why does Israel stand today? Because of God's promises. Not because of its size, because of God's promises. It's in the middle of the most fought over territory in the world. Right? So why does it exist? Because God says, that's my nation. I'm going to show the world what I'm doing. But as God sends these prophets one by one, they are turned down, they are pushed away, they are killed, they are abused, and they do terrible things to them. And so Jesus is saying, this is what happens. And finally, the vineyard owner, after prophet after prophet, okay, servant after servant, comes in to check And you get rid of all of them. Finally, the vineyard says, I'm going to, the owner says, I'm going to send my own son to tell them. I'm going to send my own son to tell them and check on this and see how the growth is going. Because this should be, it's harvest time. It should be the greatest blessing. It should be the most wonderful thing. And when they saw him, they said, that's the heir. We're going to kill him. And it'll belong to us. Seems really extreme. Seems extreme, right? And it's very easy for us to say, oh yeah, Israel, I can't believe they did that. Wow. What a terrible thing. They did it. I can't believe they got rid of them. But what we find is The reaction of these hired servants is the reaction of the human race to God, to all of his servants, to Jesus in the end. God sends his own son Jesus, right? Because he says perhaps they will reverence him. Perhaps they'll respect Jesus himself. And what do they do to him? Let's get him, let's take him out. He's a threat to us. Jesus tells this little story. And there's a lot buried inside of that. But what we look at with these with these hirelings, okay, the hired hands here, we look at them and they are rebellious. And that is exactly the human race. And if you don't think uh, that you're rebellious, you probably don't know yourself well enough. There's pieces and parts. Even if you've known the Lord, it seems to me that as I learn and grow, I struggle and struggle and struggle more. It seems to me there are such stubborn parts of my own flesh that I wonder if I'll ever get rid of them when I'm alive. Probably not. But I do know and I have learned that I can come to Christ for repentance, to help me turn my heart, my life around. And I expect that after I've tripped and fallen or even walked right into something on purpose, God will help me if I turn my heart back to him. And the getting back to him is part of the faith to understand that he says, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the part of rebellion that is within seemingly every human. Where we shake our fist at God and say, I don't want what you want. I don't care what you want. I want what I want. Sometimes it's for moments that we say that. Sometimes it's for years. Depends on kind of how we are. And Here is this rebellious group of people. These hirelings that have turned back every servant. And then they finally turned back Christ. Now Jesus Christ tells them this three days before they are going to crucify him he knows he came to jerusalem to be crucified he knows it he knows he came to die he knows some of the details of his death from some of the prophecies that happened early on and he is here not to challenge these guys i think although it does challenge them but i think much more to say You still have a chance if you'll understand. You still can turn. If you'll just turn and understand where you are in this whole big picture. So he's talking right to those religious leaders. And they're the ones that are about ready to crucify him. And he knows it. And what is their answer after he says, well, he's going to take the sun in, and perhaps the sun will be respected by these people. Oh, God forbid they do that. 72 hours. They will put him through false trials, and they will put him on a cross. 72 hours later. Because that's how the human heart likes to deceive its own self. And so... They're shocked, right? That's what they do. They, oh, God forbid that would ever happen. We could never do that. Jesus has a very interesting answer. Verse number 17. Chapter 20 of Luke, verse 17. And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. So Jesus refers to something from long, long ago. We're going to go there in a moment. Uh, but it was a piece of scripture that he pulls out and says, I know you've read this. There was a group of builders, and they were going to build this foundation. And if you understand anything about foundations, there is the, the one most important foundation to be built is you have to set that first cornerstone so that you know if your wall's going that way and the wall's going that way, that cornerstone has got to be plumb and square, sitting just right. The very corner, and you'll see a lot of old houses. If you look, they've got old rock foundations of all things, and a lot of those old houses have two nice, square, straight stones set on the corners because those are very important. Everything is measured and built off of those being square. If you start not square, the rest of the foundation is not square, and then the house comes down. Okay, So you need to have that cornerstone square. And Jesus said, there was a group of builders, and they all looked through this pile of stones, and they were saying, well, we've got to build our foundation. We've got to look and find just what we need for the foundation. And they kicked through a bunch of stones, and they took this one very nice square stone. They said, we don't want that one. And they built something else. They tried to build something else. And God had a different plan. Let's go to Psalm chapter number 118. Psalm 118 This is, of course, David speaking here. Psalm 118. This is the prophecy that David gives. 118, verse number 19. As, G, as uh, David talks about this and prophesies about Christ. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go in to them. And I will praise the Lord, this gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So he is talking about a day of celebration. He's coming in. He's going into the temple. There's a great celebration. Bring me in. Teach me how to be righteous. Teach me to do and take the right path here. And I'm going to praise you, God. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you because you did something amazing. You took what mankind thought they should throw away. You took what looked like a failure and you made it into something amazing. And we look at that and we say, it's it's incredible. It's marvelous in our eyes. So what did he do? He took the cornerstone that everybody else rejected and said, that's no good. And he said, I'm gonna build my whole building off of this. So what is the cornerstone? Well, that's Jesus. And more specifically, not only Jesus' life, but Jesus' death. If you look at Jesus, he comes in, he has no money, he has no political power, he has no desire for them. If you've ever read, he's hardly gone more than 60, 70 miles in his whole lifetime. He never left the country except for a very couple few times where he's on the border, outside border. He doesn't seem to be much. He doesn't even have a home to live in. He says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There is nothing about this man that's attractive. In fact, it even says in the Bible that he's not attractive. Physically, maybe not at all. So this man, who maybe doesn't look good and doesn't seem like he has anything to offer but words. And he brings these words in and opens up people's minds and hearts and spirits with just sitting down with these words. And that's fine. And that seems like, okay, that's okay. But in the end... The religious people take him and kill him and so it appears like the whole thing was a failure right from any measure of mankind if they would have looked and said that's how we're going to do it nobody would have ever picked jesus but god knew exactly what he was doing and he said you're gonna you want to reject all the things about jesus you want to reject all those things, but I'm going to make it the most important thing, and I'm going to set the whole building off of it. I'm going to make the standard Jesus. And you're going to know what's straight and right and real because he was the cornerstone. So when does it become marvelous? Well, it doesn't seem very marvelous the day he dies. They crucify him amongst the thieves. So three days before, he's telling this little story. Three days later, he's going to die. And then three days later is when you say, wow, God did something incredible. I'm sure these, all of these scribes and Pharisees were a little shocked when they heard Jesus rose up from the grave, right? So Jesus made everything incredible that looked like nothing. The whole ministry looked like not impressive. There was no great kingdom with it, except God was doing something much larger, much bigger. We're going to get into that a little bit more as we hear a little bit more from Christ. But this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We would have said a failure until we looked and said, christ he he went on the cross he died to forgive us our sins and then he rose again to give us new life and a chance to be with him he was the firstborn of the resurrected the first with a new glorious body and we all can have a chance now that's pretty amazing that's why we say that's marvelous we have freedom we have forgiveness no man ever offered that to us No other great history leader ever offered that to us. They offered taxes, right? And more taxes. (laughs) And all the things that all the leaders in the world have ever offered. And it just adds burden to the people. But Jesus came and took the burden off. So these people that have come to kill him... He said, you didn't understand what God was doing. You thought it all looked like I was a failure. But God has a whole different thought than you do about it. God was going to take what you threw aside and build something amazing out of it. More than amazing. Incredible. It's marvelous in our eyes. And so... did they know that's the question did these guys know these religious leaders right the scribes and the Pharisees did they know the scripture they knew a lot of scripture did they know that Christ was talking about them they did They understood it. So at that moment, they made a choice and said, we will not hear it. Why didn't they like Jesus? For a lot of reasons. But the number one reason, I would say, is they had a whole different idea of what the Messiah would be. They didn't think that the Messiah should be like him. They said in Isaiah it says the government will be upon his shoulders his name will be called wonderful counselor the mighty god and there he is eating with sinners and publicans doesn't have a place to stay he doesn't have a big following he's got 12 people that follow him I don't want anything like him I want somebody to come over and take over this Roman government throw it off And I want him to come and give me a position of power in that. That's what they want. They're not interested in what Jesus brings. What Jesus brings is words that cut in a different way. They cut deep down inside the spirit of man. And they just aren't ready to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want that. They have an idea what all this scripture means, and they say, well, I got it. I I have already figured it out. And yet God's plan was nothing like that. God said, I want to bring you peace and forgiveness and freedom in what looked like a wreck. But I'm going to make it be the most glorious thing that ever existed. The cross of Christ, his resurrection. There's a song, In the Cross of Christ I Glory, talking about the cross towering over the wrecks of time. Everything mankind has ever put together and built will all fall apart, but not what God did that day that he allowed his son to come and be killed. And then rose from the dead. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy, never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. And so the thing that was meant to be something of torture, the Romans built the cross to become an instrument of torture and pain and to exert power over their enemies god says i will take that and turn that into a symbol of hope because of my son i will take it and i will take all the pain that it that it brings with it and turn it and all of mankind's sin up on its head and forgive it and all you need to do is ask what, what an amazing thing. You don't need to go pay money. You don't need to do anything like that. You just need to ask. And so we see what a marvelous thing God did. And Jesus then, you have two choices. And you see what it said uh, in verse number 18. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone, the stone which the builders rejected, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You have to deal with Jesus sometime in your existence. You can choose to turn away. You can choose to forget him in this life. You can choose to push him away. You can choose to be like the scribes. And the Pharisees said, say, I don't want anything to do with him. I want my position. I want my glory. You could choose to do that. And if you choose to do that, it says your ending will be different. You'll have to deal with him someday because you will see the power of Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says that in God's word and that day for those who have rejected him will be a day of great sorrows and that's the people that will be crushed into powder, because all they could muster in their life was worth nothing but those people who trip and fall on christ now it's a different thing i don't know if you've ever uh, been hit by a rock Amy threw rocks at me once. I don't know. <laughs> She's told to do it, I guess. but A little rock hurts, right? <laughs> a little rock hurts. You could trip and fall and, and bruise yourself on something or even break a leg, something like that, and you'll heal. But I've seen some mighty, mighty big rocks, and one of those rocks lands on top of you from very far up. You're done. It's a whole different story than just tripping on the rock and breaking your leg. You heal from tripping. You don't heal from being crushed. And that's the difference with those who choose to deal with Jesus in this life. They trip, they fall. You know, it might hurt. Because what happens is he exposes the parts of us that we don't want to deal with lot of those things inside exposes them to ourself he shows us what we're like and it's painful and we see the things our shortcomings the things we don't want to believe about ourselves we see those things little bits at a time and that's like tripping and breaking your leg or stubbing your toe or whatever depends on the size of it right so you stumble and fall and it'll break you But that's a better approach to Christ than it is to be crushed and wait and say, I don't need him. And find out in the end, you really did. And you lost your opportunity. Your whole life you threw away. Because you just wouldn't deal with him. You just wouldn't take him. It's an interesting name. You can say almost any name on a college campus. Jesus stands up people's hair on their necks. Schools. You could tell anybody about any other thing. You could talk about Buddhism, and that's okay. And you could talk about Native American uh, worship. You could talk about all sorts of things, and those are all okay. But Jesus, people say, you can't say that. There's a reason. Because you're either going to deal with them in this life, or you're going to deal with them in the life to come. And I don't want to be there. I've done a lot of things, plenty of things in my life, but I want to go back to him now when, I, when he takes me gently after he says, hey, look at what you're doing. Stop. Turn around. Change this in your life. And you feel pretty foolish and pretty stupid sometimes, but he turns you around and says, let's get this right and then go out and do something to help people. Show them who I am. So when you do that, you start to learn what it's all about. All right? And so, verse number 22, as we uh, keep going, verse number 22. Now, we found that they said, we don't like this guy. We are turning against this guy. Uh, And they asked him... Oops, I'm sorry, I skipped uh, skipped the verse. Go to verse 20. And they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his word so that they might deliver him under the power and the authority of the governor. So once he told them this parable about themselves uh, and rejecting God, they said, we're going to get him. It was not, boy, maybe maybe we should think twice about this. No, we're going to get him. We're going to take him down. So they're trying to trip him up. They can't find anything he does wrong in his life. But they're going to make him try to trip over his words. All right. And here they go. Verse number uh, 21. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Now, they don't really believe that. But they are trying to bait the hook. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Should we pay our taxes? Well, that makes everybody's hair stand up too, right? <laughs> should we pay our taxes? Do you think we should pay our taxes? Right? And... Because he is saying, he wants to make sure that they're trying to get him in trouble with the Roman government. Ah, you don't need to pay your taxes. They're hoping he's going to say something. And this is what he says. Verse 22. But he perceived their craftiness, and he said unto them, Why tempt you me? Show me a penny, whose image and superscription hath it. And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take a hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. So here he is. The Jews wanted something different. The Jews wanted a ruler. He wasn't going to be that. So he tried to put him in this conflict, but Jesus is way smarter than them. Now, to be a civic leader, you have to have power and position, right? And people think, well, that's a good thing. But Jesus looks at them and says, you don't even understand where I'm coming from. You have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm not here to build you a kingdom in Israel. I have a different kingdom that I'm doing. I'm doing something different. I'm building a great kingdom that rules across all people, that rules in the hearts of people, a kingdom of persuasion, a kingdom of obedience, but a kingdom of freedom. A kingdom where the greatest servants become the greatest leaders. A kingdom where money is not a differentiation between the people in it. You don't need to have a million dollars to be a part of this kingdom. It doesn't matter if you have none. It doesn't matter where you are in it. It is separate than money. Following God, truly following God, is separate than money. It is not even an issue. Things that are important to God's kingdom are unimportant to the world. And things that are important to the world's kingdom are unimportant to God. Money, land, influence, power, they are unimportant to God. They are not a barrier for him. Nowhere. He doesn't have to worry about it. He's not concerned about it. I think about a few stories that I've read over uh, my life. Story of Corey ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was in uh, Ravensbrück, which was a concentration camp during World War II. Corrie ten Boom was a strong believer. She watched her father and her sister be executed, killed in camps there and she was the lone survivor of that family. She waited for her day to die and then one day they called her number across a loudspeaker and says, come to report to wherever you're free. She has no family. She has no power. No influence. She's a prisoner in A camp that is there to kill people. But God says, I want her free. So you know how she got out? It was a clerical error. Somebody mixed two numbers up. No, they didn't. (laughs) No, they didn't. It's exactly what God says. There's no borders and barriers. I don't care if you have the biggest armies in the world. I don't care if you have all the money in the world. It makes no difference. I've read of Bibles being taken into China and people crossing the border of China, their trunk filled with Bibles. It's illegal to have a Bible. At that time, it was illegal to bring a Bible into China. They could not import a Bible. Guards came, said, we're going to search your car. We opened up the car. The guy's like, okay. Opened up the car. Looked. There's whole cases of Bible in the trunk. Guard shut the, door, the car and said, okay, you're good, go. Didn't see him. How does he not see him? Because God says, it's not a problem. I can get him past the guard. That's not a problem. That's not a barrier for me. Missionaries, I read of missionaries in need of money. We're doing a book over in the teenagers uh, class about a man that was down with the Motolone Indians down in um south america and there were times he needed money he went to the post office there was money he didn't have it he just said i'm gonna go because god's gonna have to provide this this is what i needed so he walked in there opened up the envelope he's like after a while i just expected it to be there i didn't know where it was coming from and it didn't matter because god says i'm gonna get this to you God is not bound by that. His kingdom is not bound by money. His kingdom is not bound by power. You can have the biggest armies in the world. God doesn't care. Church in need of land. Right? Here we are. Just before COVID, we have a farmer that says, I'm going to give you some land. We build a parking lot in it and everybody says, wow, that's a really big parking lot. What are we ever going to do with that? Just the year before 2020, we had parking lot church because God said, there's not, a, there's not a problem. I can get you the land you need when you need it. I'll provide you just what you need. So that is God's kingdom. Mankind worries about the money and worries about the problems and worries about the power and worries about all the things. And Jesus says, you don't even understand You give Caesar his money. I don't care. Do it. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Your heart belongs to God. That's what he asks for. So why do churches fail? Well, lots of reasons. But one reason why the churches fail is because just like the Pharisees in this this story, just like the, the hirelings, they're more worried about... What they can get their money, their power, their positions, they're less worried about their relationship with God. And so those churches, God says, "That's not my kingdom." People that live like that says, "That's not my kingdom. My kingdom is in the heart. My kingdom is in that place." And so Jesus takes these words. And he offers, he looks at a little coin, and he says, You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you give to God what belongs to God. Clarity. In few words, he says, right? He makes things come into perspective through those few words. You go to Hebrews. Let's finish up in Hebrews chapter number 4. Hebrews chapter number 4. verse number 12 Hebrews 4 verse 12 Jesus words Hebrews 4 verse 12 for the word of God is quick and powerful sharper than any two edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart This is where the power of the kingdom of God lies, in God's words. His power lies in his words. And with the word of God, it says he can cut between the spirit and the soul. And most people would say, what is the difference? Well, throughout the Bible, it talks about body, soul, and spirit. You are a being made up of those three things. can't separate them. Not in this life. You can't separate them. But as we start out, our spirit, the part that talks with God, because God is a spirit, right? That part that can interact with God, that's dead because we were born in sin. So that's dead. When God comes into your life, he makes that alive. But we oftentimes ignore that piece. We're not comfortable with that piece. Much more comfortable with this, right? Because I could touch this and feel this. And I'm more comfortable with your personality, your character, the things that I think make you up. Right? Your sense of humor and the things that you talk about and your likes and dislikes. And that's what I think is a way to really connect with you, right? To talk about, uh, to talk with you about your soul. That's, that's your personality, your soul. Our soul can have its struggles, right? Our personality, that's where our words come out of that. And those put us in trouble a lot of times. But God's word, it says, can divide soul and spirit and show you where things aren't quite right in your soul and god has come into your spirit and he says i can teach you that the difference we can't divide that very well we don't know how that is until god we read the god's word and then one day we say wow i never saw that about myself that's the power of what it is in god's kingdom and so it is sharp and cutting and it points right back to our rebellion. Oftentimes, those pieces we push away from God, oftentimes. But if we let him come in and work and go back to him and say, Okay, I don't like this very much, but I want to know what you have to say about who I really am. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a person that I, that I couldn't respect in somebody else. I want to be a person of god and i want you to come deep inside of me and change me right the hirelings weren't interested in that get these guys out of here the people of god are interested in that and so you see this whole story that god puts in place jesus tells the story starts with israel and goes through it's about mankind rejecting god and ultimately bringing his son dying for us giving us an opportunity and jesus saying you choose which way you want to go you want to choose caesar's way you go caesar's way or you choose god's way you go god's way it's a whole different thing so to understand a little bit more of what it is that we are to do and where we are to go, Jesus imparts this wisdom and says, I want you to come to me, and I want to change you, and I want to help you, and I want to heal you. Where you trip on that stone, I want to heal you. I want you to understand, we're going to get this right. We're going to help you. Do this right and so this is christ's words to the pharisees incredible things to learn he's got a lot in a little story a couple words he says and you can dig a lot in these things all right thank you very much have a good evening